our second episode of February 2021 for the Centopia podcast. Uh, this is our Glasgow Film Festival special where we're going to take in depth the festival, what's on offer, and uh, review a few films, interview um, a, a director. My name's Amanda. I'm a founder of Cinetopia, and I'm here with my co-producer on the show, Jim Ross. Uh, how are you, Jim? I'm good. I'm good. Um as ever, probably watching more films than I can keep straight in my head, but some are good, so yeah, that's all fine. Yeah, you've been on two major film festivals this year so far, so you've you've gotten a lot in this time. Uh, well, allegedly. This year. Allegedly, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we're also joined with um, uh, a regular on our show, and uh, Mark Nelson. Mark, how are you? Hello, Amanda. Thanks very much. I'm well good have you gotten through um your uh, were you writing some some papers as well for school and everything i mean the the due date was essentially the same week as the beginning of screenings for glasgow so that was fun to fun to juggle um i have also been on a i'm sure <laughs> yeah. we'll, i'm sure we'll talk about this more but i have been on an enormous um frederick wiseman a thon in the run-up to city hall so uh, i think we'll talk about that more once we get to city hall <laughs> Oh, well, that's great. And I, I wish I had had a little bit more time to do the same. Um, but we'll, I'm sure we'll go back to Frederick Weissman, Athan, at some point in the future as well. And we're back also with our, well, uh, Steph is back with us, a, a regular as well. She was in our previous February edition as well. So, Steph, how are you doing over the past couple of weeks? Hello, Amanda. Um, I've been all right, just um, suffering through lockdown, but it makes you take in a lot more films. And I think that if, if you're back to normality so there is pros and cons how are you doing uh not too bad i've been also juggling uh work and uh an edit and um the glasgow film festival and we've we're st- we've started to create um some material for cinescapes so been doing some interviews around that which is exciting and uh yeah i've been catching up with tons of films on the Glasgow Film Festival sort of uh, press screenings, but we're here to talk about all of that today. Um, so overall, um, how many films have you guys seen and what's your overall take so far? Um, that's a good question, actually. I'm not sure. I, I think I, at the time of recording, I think I've seen nine, I think, which is which is quite... Well, that's quite restrained, though. I mean, Sundance, I think I got to like 18 or 19, so I've probably seen a lot more by the time you get to the end. Um, by and large, my impression's pretty good. I think I think we've we've picked some good ones to talk about on the show. Um, without saying anything else, because it'll still be under embargo. There are a couple of films which I'm not that impressed with, if I'm honest. But overall, I think the I think the program looks pretty good, and the ones that we've picked out in particular are good. There are there are other ones which maybe we'll talk about on later shows when they come around on general release, which are also. Pretty good. So the overall, you know, and I said this in the interview with Al, we had with Alison Gardner. Generally speaking, I quite like the way they approach the Glasgow program. So there's definitely a whole bunch of stuff in there that's worth seeing. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I I actually really have to say that I'm I don't know if I have I've been at a ton of these online film festivals, but I found so far that the format and the way everything is playing and whatnot. Um, I know I know you talked to Alison about the kind of her testing and, and making sure that so so the whole usability it was quite good. And I really I've enjoyed it. So um, I've really I've really had a good time 
um, you know, getting to see these films has been quite easy and quite rewarding. So um, I'm looking forward. Let me just mention that um, the industry program at Glasgow is usually an incredible um, opportunity for filmmakers. Um, they, they, they run a great program in the industry. And that's what I've done for the last couple of years has been part of that. So if there is still industry passes available, I'm not sure, but you know, just a, just even if you missed out this year, consider it in the future, because I highly recommend, um, what they're, what they're able to accomplish, um, at that film festival. Not that other ones I've been to haven't been good as well, but this one was, I think, particularly exemplary. So I hope that will be the same this year. So Mark, how have you, um, been getting along with the, with the film festival so far? So I think I've seen 19 movies so far, and I think we're just over, just over halfway, or just past halfway, I think, in terms of screenings, and it's been very, very slow uh, so far, I have, to, I have to be honest. Hopefully it picks up in the next week. I've seen a film today I can't mention that I think is wonderful, and I think we'll be talking about it in the in the near future, um, but... Yeah, I if I if I continue talking any longer, I'll start moaning. So I'll stop here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and Steph, you've seen these films, um, but yeah, um, so so you've seen at least four. Have re- your, yourself, right? Yeah, yeah, I've seen. Um, I, I think I've seen a, a few things from the festival this year. I get because things come from different companies. I get kind of lost on what's coming from what. But um, I have seen quite a lot of really good documentaries this year, which I'd never really have the privilege of seeing too much of. So it's been a nice, um, nice change about um, festival wise. So on this special edition, we are going to be reviewing four films that are part of the Glasgow Film Festival this year. Um, and uh, the first one is going to be Limbo, which is a Scottish film by filmmaker Ben Chirac. Uh, this, I believe, is his second film. Uh, City Hall. It is definitely not Frederick Weissman's um, second film. It's uh, probably quite a many films have come back for decades, um, but that is his latest uh, observational documentary we'll be reviewing. Uh, Minari, uh, which um, is directed by Lee Isaac Chung, um, is American film, and the film Apples by Christos Nico. Um, I also had the opportunity to interview the co-director of Polystyrene, uh, I Am a Cliché, uh, which is a documentary about punk, punk British musician, um, originally by the name Marianne Joan Elliott Said. So um, we'll talk with him later on um, and uh, hear about that film. So that's a, that's a very exciting um, show and looking forward to talking to, talking to you guys. So the first film we're going to talk about is Limbo by Ben Chirac. Um, so basically, um, the plot of Limbo centers around um, a young musician called Omar, who has um, recently um, sort of migrated to a remote island in Scotland to escape um, the war in Syria. And there he kind of is part of a cultural awareness program where he's introduced to a lot of different um, immigrants who are seeking a better life outside of um, poverty and famine and war-torn areas. And it's all about um, how they kind of begin to belong and feel also kind of like a, a duality between 
um, belonging and feeling quite isolated from this culture and how they kind of integrate themselves and how they, they build relationships and friendships. And it kind of it swings through a lot of comedy, um, a lot of com- comedic undertones and to quite um, harrowing drama. So it's a, a very much a balanced film in the way that it explores kind of like the migrant crisis and things like that. Great. And what, what are your thoughts on the film? You know, um, for a film like this, I've not seen a funnier opening sequence in quite a while than in Limbo. Um, I was in Stitches. I, I, you Obviously, people will understand that more when they see it, but the balance of comedy and drama through this film is really quite remarkable, especially, you know, with the subject matter that it's exploring. And I think that um, the characters in it have, for how kind of condensed the film it is, have so much life about them. And it does centre around the story of um, four different um, four different people who have moved recently to this um, island in Scotland, and how they have to find their find their own way and find themselves um, in this different in this completely different place that almost almost fails to integrate them a little bit. So you have the these people that are kind of holding on. Um, to these connections that they've made through the most kind of absurd ways and the way that that sort of develops. And it's just, I I would recommend everyone to go and see this film. I've not seen um, Ben Sharrock's um, um, film um, before. I think, I'm not sure the title for it, the one that was weird a couple of years ago, but it's um, made me definitely quite, ur- like ur- making me quite, you know, I want to urgently seek that out and give it a watch. So the opening scene grabbed me from the second I saw it, and I think it's a really, really good thing for Steph to bring up there. Um, I honestly don't think I've laughed so much. At it. And to be clear, this is this is a film that balances comedy and drama, right? So it's not a it's not a comedic film as such. But that opening scene, I don't think I've laughed at something um, so much for for quite some time. This is a film which balances tone perfectly in my opinion, and I think that's the biggest demonstration of that is that opening scene. The The tone of it goes a bit more sombre later on. It, like, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a way the tone of the film develops, and it's always balancing uh, humorous aspects of this kind of... this refugee experience of being in this completely alien place, really. Um, and I think one thing that I enjoyed quite a lot about that is... Scotland, and in particular Scottish filmmakers, have a tendency to romanticise Scotland um, and the landscape. And that's something which Sherlock's not doing here. Um, it's, it, it, it comes across as quite barren and inhospitable, and that kind of gels with the experience of these refugees and Omar in particular, throughout the film and that that was an interesting aspect that I actually quite liked so it's balancing this very stressful experience this very alienating experience but also these moments of humor that you find um and there are lots of these absurdist moments which remind me a lot of um a lot of other filmmakers that I like a lot you know I got hints of Roy Anderson off it I got hints of hints of uh Ilya Suleiman off it um you know like it's, it's clear to me I think that those those filmmakers in particular have an influence on this and that balance of kind of like this very 
melancholic atmosphere with humour is handled extremely well, and I think the performances underpin it extremely well also. I think it's very difficult to balance the tone of a film the way that Limbo does, and I think it does it extremely well. Yeah, I like the comparison with Suleiman. I'd also add Aki Karazmaki is big for this, and there's a there's a massive, a massive deadpan element to it, which um, is important for Omar, and the performance by Amir El-Masri I think is wonderful, um, because he's such a good foil to the effusive Scots who keep putting their foot in their mouth and just have too much to say, whereas he has nothing to say, and he has this the perfect observer profile. Um, just walking around, he does a lot of an awful lot of walking in the movie, and there are these frequent shots of him walking down snowy roads, and um, it does evoke how long he's been journeying um to get to that place. And I would say also that the the staging in the film is exquisite. There are these single shots which are multi-planed and have numerous points of drama within them, but he can alternate between long and medium long shot to then going into close-up, and these close-ups have these fantastic um, sort of leaning into the lens emphases um, throughout them, and I think they're incredibly moving at instances, particularly when you get to the stories of the two um, the two housemates who are pretending to be brothers, one's from Ghana, one's from Nigeria, and they're pretending to be um, brothers in order to um, get their asylum claim processed. Um, I'd also say that there's... A, a thing which you often get in films by Suleiman, which is a kind of exaggerated understatement. Um, and there are moments where, for instance, the other housemate who's called Farad, who's played by Vikash Bai, he has a moment where he's in the classroom, which the film opens with, in the, uh, that brilliant scene that we've talked about, where he raises his hand. And when he raises his hand, it's like he's doing breaststroke. It's like his, his arm is out of the socket almost, that he's reaching up so high. But because the camera's so still, the joke registers all the more and because everybody within the frame is all kind of, are all kind of looking at the looking at the camera with this bored detached look um it just it just keeps emphasizing and redoubling in significance for me i should also say as a still game partisan i nearly cheered at a certain appearance in the film uh in the in the suit in the market um but i'll maybe leave that for folk to discover yeah, I mean, I would echo everything everyone said. It's, um, yeah, I mean, the tone is, is quite, um, quite amazing to you know to balance everything together, drama and comedy, and uh, it's done so well. I also would say, as you were mentioning, um, I was really particularly impressed. Of course, when you're in, like north and I think it's north and south east where that that the filming took place, um, the Outer Hebrides. It's obviously gorgeous, but and quite barren. And that landscape is you know is is probably easy to make beautiful. But the way that he used like this negative space in almost all of the landscape shots, there was kind of a real beautiful thematic sort of like way in which the the each um. That all the scenes were, I just was, I, I was, I, it made me really happy to be in Scotland, um, you know, and also it felt quite cold and, and barren as you suggested. Um, but I, but I just think it's, it, it was a definitively unique um, way to film, to film Scotland and, um, and it worked so well with the story and, and what they were trying, you know, the inner sort of like, um, you know, perspective of someone coming from the outside um, to to this this location, and I just um, yeah, I I, I can't say anything 
that you both that everybody hasn't said that that but it, it, i highly recommend it it's beautiful i think um i think it's worth talking about amir el mazari's performance as well actually and i think it, especially in the context of um something that mark brought up which is the the use of close-ups in the film that kind of like that that sense that almost kind of like leaning into the lens and it's one of these films where a lot of the emotions especially early on in the film are quite subtle ones but with that style of shooting your subject there's really nowhere for you to hide um you know like every every slight you know movement on your face is going to be really rendered in pretty large detail right um and i think he does an absolutely excellent job because on top of that that we've mentioned about sort of like the deadpan tone and Amir El Masri is kind of in most of the, if not every scene actually, but like most of the most of the scenes, and really has to sell that tone. And I think the other person who does it extremely well is uh, Vikash Bai is Farhad. Um, in particular, a lot of the subtle stuff that goes on with him later in the film. I think both of those performances in particular are standout ones. But frankly, all the supporting performances have to do it as well. You know, there's a lot of you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of segments where I struggle to see how people kept a straight face doing it, and that that kind of goes for the comedic moments as well as some of the more emotional moments. So, I think the the filmmaking itself, in terms of, kind of the the form of it, is extremely accomplished, and it tells that story visually very well. But I think the performances that Ben Schrock has got out of the actors as well, it's one of these things where they just come together really quite effectively um and i think that a lot a lot's going to focus on the form of it and i think understandably right because it is very good but i don't think the the way that that's blended with the performances should be should be overlooked because that's what makes for me that's what makes the film work as a as a whole yeah and it's that that thing you said jim about um the there being nowhere to hide is interesting because from that opening scene which is so much the joke in that opening scene which i won't mention because it is it's so good um, is essentially court, kind of turns on the extent to which the people in the scene are performing within a performance. And that's crucial for the film, I think, because it's so much about learning to act a certain way. And his passivity is actually a, re- a kind of a rejection. It's kind of a way of saying no to certain slights that are handed his way, certain assumptions that are made of him. Um, I like, too, the idea that um, this is a a Scottish movie which sort of overturns the cliche of Scotland as this great utopian nation and I, I you know think it's fair to say it's not it's it's a country with numerous issues about prejudice as every country has and this has a particularly clear way of dramatizing that and I also wanted to mention something Amanda said about the use of negative space without going too far towards the ending there's a change in the way the images are the visual the the images are arranged in the in the final parts of the film, and I think that speaks to Sharik's conception of Omar's selfhood and how he gradually like walks toward a certain vision of selfhood that was denied him earlier in the film. And also, just want to mention that it'll probably become one of these classic slapstick sequences. But the um, the Royal Mail van, which makes its merry way up to their house, um, possibly. Uh, with a letter confirming asylum in the country, that's one of the that's one of the standout scenes in the film for me. In the way that it constantly 
it constantly like goads you to laugh at it, but it's actually very sad and very desperate. And the fact that they're standing at the end of their driveway is it's a ter it's a horrible image of the four of them in the frame crammed together, um, but still manages to be extremely funny and play on a certain kind of formal humour involving the music, which another film we'll cover today does not do so well. And um, I, I, I love that scene and I think I love the film. Although I will say there's a, there are parts where he's playing the oud, the instrument that he plays, um, where it goes into these kind of associative montages and it's kind of, it kind of hammers home the idea that the, the oud is the link to home for him. And I want to watch the film again to see if I wasn't missing something something of an emotional note in these scenes because I felt a little bit cold towards them but I think I, 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 my intuition is that there's something right here that I missed on first on first watch but I'm already looking forward to seeing it again I think um, also to go back to the performances particularly um, of Omar and Farhad I think that there seems to be it's difficult in these films are quite almost kind of ruminate through absurdist and slapstick humour and I think it's so difficult when you've got a script that jumps through all these kind of hoops with drama and kind of trying to find that equilibrium between the tones that um, these characters would bounce off each other so well. It almost seems like when I was watching it I was wondering um, is there being quite a bit of um, leeway with the script? Has there been quite a lot of improv happening on set? Has there been because there's, you know, the, the humour within it kind of is very much quite British. And I think when we say that, um, we don't really know what that means. What do you mean by British humour? But if you, I think if you watch the way that it channels kind of these small moments um, throughout and the way that they kind of follow each other to lead to something um, later on, I think the more that you, you pick up through these characters and the more that the story kind of comes through on this barren remote island and and stuff it's very much it's very much a film that kind of almost manages to cap capture an atmosphere that you wouldn't expect to be there from the way that it's shot it's it's very interest it's a very interesting film and i think that you know you can't downplay how the performances have kind of brought those to the forefront i think that a lot of that is with the performances of these characters to make um the kind of deadpan hum humor that kind of sails it through um how powerful it really is great so we highly recommend you check the this film out limbo it's uh, going to be at glasgow film festival online and um we'll we'll make sure that the links are in in the description as well Next film we're going to review is Minari, um, by directed by Lee Isaac Chung, and um, Mark. Do you want to give us a little bit of an intro to that film? Sure thing. So as we mentioned, it's Lee Isaac Chung's film Minari. It's about a family, the Yees, who move from California, where Jacob, who's played by Stephen Yoon, and Monica, who's played by Han Yeri, um, work in sort of chick chick sexing factories and they move out from California where arguments tell us that they um have been having you know discussions about money because they need to send money back to back to Korea um from which they've emigrated and their children who are born in America they come with them they are 
um, little David, who's played by Alan Kim, and Anne as well, who's played by Noel Kate Cho. So they move to Arkansas, and it's part of Jacob's vision for their life there that he will take over this huge plot of land and farm Korean vegetables. And he puts all of his energy into this task, leaving somewhat of a gap between him and Monica. And the kids do their thing um, up until the arrival of their grandmother, who causes a bit of friction between husband and wife. And David doesn't really get on with her either. He, he sees her as not a real grandma because she doesn't you know, bake cookies. Um, uh, she's called Sunya and she's played by Yoon Yoo Jung. Um, there's also a neighbor character who kind of gravitates towards the family and starts helping out in the land. He's, played, he's called Paul, but he's played by Will Patton. And he is uh, he's a Christian mystic, I think you'd say. He speaks in tongues on occasion and he's very effusive, but he was also a Korean War vet. So he sees that as a, as a connection between him and the Yees. Um, I will I'll leave off on exactly what I think about the film until we all get a, a word in. So, um, Steph, what do you think about Minari? I really like Minari quite a lot. I think it's refreshing to see a film about um, sort of not so much migration since I think when we, when we talk about um, jumping country to country, but going up from to, to Arkansas to um, almost build a new life kind of when we see these films, it's always very much centred around the American dream and how the American dream is um, an illusion and how it's, it's never um, going to hold up to the... Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, I really I loved um, Minari. I think that um, it's really nice to have one of these films that when we're talking about kind of that kind of doesn't go straight into the American dream. We think when you have something about people fleeing towards, in this film in particular, going to Arkansas to um, gain a more prosperous life, to, to find something that makes them feel um, kind of purposeful in, in the grounds that they, they live upon. And it's one of those things that, for once, we don't have the whole, is the American dream an illusion? Is it... Is it is it all letting us down? Because we have the that's the kind of narrative that we expect from these films, and this one focuses much more on family, on the family at the core of it, and what, um, what it means to kind of take roots from, take these roots from, um, European, from Korea and into America, and how that and how it's difficult to kind of make kind of make your mark on a new location how and how you can co contribute to it and I think you see that um a lot in the family dynamics between you know the husband and the wife and what they there are two separate visions for what they want out of this move and especially what the you know especially what David and um the influence of the grandmother kind of alters that for him and how that becomes a big conflict in the center and continues to meander through almost turbulent waves in the way that they um digest this this part of their lives and things i i would definitely i definitely would say that it's definitely a film that is a different way to explore this narrative that we see we've seen in so many films before um what did you think of the film jim so yeah this is 
this is a film I liked a lot. Um, it does meander at points, I think, is really my only um, criticism of it. There are a few points where the rural Arkansas backdrop and kind of the the sun and wandering through the fields and kind of the very emotive score. There are a couple of moments where I think it maybe meanders a little bit, if I'm being honest. However, by and large, I found it a very, a very engaging and, for me, refreshing film. Um, now, part of that is because we're dealing with a family where we've got Korean-born parents who have moved to America, and then we've got kids who, you know, converse in Korean but are American. They were born in America. They have no, no real experience of Korea. And a lot of the the cultural clashes that come up in this film, they are, refreshingly for me, I think, um, they're not with the Arkansas residents of the 1980s. Um, you know, because that would be a reasonably easy and perhaps more um, acidic route to go with this. But it's actually far more to do with the culture clashes within the family itself. Um, you know, in particular... In particular, the the kids, in particular, um, David, uh, played by Alan Kim, the the youngest little boy, he has so many scenes with uh, his grandmother, uh, Sunya, played by uh, Yu Young Yoon, where it, it's actually really, really very funny, um, in a sort of like quite hurtful way at times, and I think the way it plays the generational differences between, say. Sunya and her daughter Monica, um, the clashes kind of culturally even between Monica and her husband Jacob, the cultural clashes between the kids and the grandmother, the kids and the parents. I think the way it navigates all these things in the script is extremely, extremely well done and it's another one of these films that's doing a delicate balancing act. Something that actually reminded me of a little bit in that respect was another film that we reviewed on the show a while ago in Miss Juneteenth. Uh, now, the reason I bring that up is because it's another one of these films where to watch it, it doesn't look like there's necessarily a lot of hard work going on, but in order to balance the different perspectives and still tell a story within that, it's actually quite, for me anyway, quite skillfully done. Um, so for me, I've, I found it... I found it really very good i don't think it's it's one of these films where i don't necessarily cut there's lots of things that i'm sure you could pick out from it as a you know a message or you know of any other thing but really at its core i think it's just quite a well-told story um and it does that very deftly using the relationships between the different members of that family and also some of the some of the folk around them such as uh, the paul character played by will Patton and so on um so yeah, I got I personally got a lot out of this. You know, it's it's strange. Um, the one if I had to offer, I suppose, any criticism to this film, and I did thoroughly enjoy. It, I I loved how it centered on the family. What confused me a little bit is because we have such a focal point about young David and his grandmother, and then on the sidelines we have um the conflicts between the husband and wife, the um father and mother about what they're searching for on this um in this move, and I. I it makes me it's kind of weird to find out where the sister sort of fits into that you know she 
she's sort of a character that kind of I suppose you could say is quite a mediator between the, the the relationship between the between David and his grandmother and between him her mother and father, but she doesn't really um serve much purpose in the movie other than to I suppose establish like a family unit to maybe balance it out. It, it, it's a bit of, it was one of the things when I was watching it when I was sort of looking for her to have her story and was a bit confused when she didn't really have one. She existed sort of somewhere in between everyone else's. And I think when you're doing a, a story that is centred on the a, a family unit and, and their um, reflection of, of their their kind of migration to this new this new life, it's strange that her story wouldn't be included. I think that was one of the things I was a bit um a bit disappointed in, but not enough to, you know, not keep my attention on everything else that was going on. But it is one of those things that I did notice, which just because it was a little bit strange, to be honest, um, when I was seeing it. I don't know if anyone else felt that way with that character, but or maybe just something that was well, lingering. I don't know if I, I don't know if I totally agree. I, I guess, um, you know, if she she plays this role of someone who gets largely. I mean, you kind of have the younger son who you know has kind of the personality and you know is grappling with the frustration with you know additions to the family, and you know she's kind of trying to be the responsible one. You know, the left sort of left alone. You know, while the parents work. So I I felt that that kind of character was was kind of strong I mean she was always trying to take them to church and she was always trying to you know I I, I don't know I I, I I really did grasp her character I really did I kind of very much enjoyed it it was quite subtle but I think the whole film is quite subtle and I think that's kind of the point you know the point is and, and I think you bringing up Miss Juneteenth I was thinking about the fact that that film kind of explores multiple characters um, and the family and no one's kind of the you know no one's kind of vilified in a sense you know so everyone here is going through a certain you know complication and it isn't about the outside world like you said I mean it is the outside world is that you know is the getting used to and making it home but the internal comp you know the internal you know issues are what is what kind of is driving the story so in that way I think like you said it it is it is quite it's quite um lovely I you know I guess I had heard a lot about this film like just in the fact that I guess it was a big deal at Sundance and then there was this recent controversy over you know what category it was in in the Golden Globes and whatnot which I'm sure Jim has comments on um, <laughs> I'm, I'm biting my tongue yeah I'm biting my tongue. <laughs> um, but uh but you know I, I you know, that's one of those things where I wish I hadn't maybe had had that information before. Um, like, oh, you know, best thing to come out of Sundance um, because maybe I had had different expectations. I, I liked it, but, I, you know, I, I thought, it like like you said, maybe sometimes it was meandering. I don't know if it was meandering as much as it was just a quiet film. It was a quiet film about a family and, you know, and a story about, uh, like, you know, in the like in the 80s. Um, I mean, a, a quite, um, a quite enjoyed the church scene where they're just bored and I just thought about the times my parents took me to church and I wish I had a phone and that you know like too bad I grew up well I didn't grow up in the 80s but still you know um anyway so you know it it, it was good it really is good um you know I, I don't know if it's the best film I've seen this year but um but I but I enjoyed it 
I kind of agree with Steph's point, and I also see where it's meant to fit in the narrative too, because it's, I think it's got to do with David's heart murmur, and the fact that because he's so unwell, the parents have kind of channeled a lot of their energy into him, and Anne's had to be self-reliant in a way. But that that said, the, the movie does move away from David's perspective at times. It kind of begins with his point of view looking in the rearview mirror, but... It does move away from him at moments, and why it didn't move to her as part of those movements, yeah, I, I, I can see, I can see that that's an omission in the film's like, you know, emotional structure in a way. I have to say that I've seen it twice now, and on first viewing, I really didn't get on with it. I found it really cold and quite jarring in a, in a way that I, I had to see again to try and tease out the reasons why. And I think it's useful to contrast this, and the fact of a fact of why I didn't like it with the film which I feel like it's in some ways similar to in design, which is uh, Lulu Wang's The Farewell, which is a film that I really don't get on with because the, I don't I think there's nearly a good performance in the film, to be quite honest. But it's a film whose design I quite like. Exactly the opposite here, which is the performances are probably one exception, top to bottom, wonderful. And the design I don't really get on with because the design of the film kind of moves through first i think the first hour is lovely first hour is full of the, a lot of the understated touches that we've been talking about so far and it's full of excellent performances as i say i think the standout is um hanye re as monica i think she's absolutely tremendous she can hold a close-up like no one else in that film she has these reserves of anger and frustration and boredom that kind of come in waves and i think they're so incredibly evoked by like the way she kind of shifts her stance or the way that she kind of, her her frown begins, or, you know, numerous things that she uses in her um, expressive toolkit that I just think are extraordinary. I think it's the best performance in the film. But what happens after that first hour is things start going downhill for the, the, the farming, the prospect of their farming. And once that happens, the film invites this kind of steady decline in terms of the family's emotional security. And then seems as though it's going to sort of swing up and gradually effloresce into feeling again. And I don't feel like it did that in a way because part of what Lee Isaac Chung's style demands is this um, variation between long shot and closer, closer shots. And at times he's putting a wee bit too much of a frame on an interaction. So if the performances are wonderful, there are scenes where the performances are kind of like subtracted almost subtracted as an element from the scene for instance i'm thinking of when sunya arrives in the house and they have this scene where she hands to her daughter um chilies and anchovies from korea and they're like and she she cries because you know these are reminders of home or an old home and what happens there is that the, the way that it's staged is that there's there's this door frame in the way and it puts too much of a comment on the performances and doesn't actually let them perform to me when the performances are the best thing. Why, why take away from your actors in that way? Um, and I'll say that there are also these, these moments where Jacob's at his kind of lowest ebb, which are in, in the field at, you know, at twilight and they're straight out of Terrence Malick's films. They're kind of low, low angled shots. Often the camera's kind of like drifted unmooring and moving. And they serve little to no purpose to me. And there's such a diversion. And the film has quite a few of those little moments where it decides to put too much of a comment on a character for me. So I end up 
kind of losing out a certain a certain emotional texture that I'm sure everybody else is experiencing, but I I don't know. It's also part of it is because it's kind of gesturing towards a film I really love, um, and the final card is to all our grandmas, and the fact that there's a a grandmother and an adorable kid puts me in mind of Edward Yang's Yi Yi, and as soon as that comparison became alive for me, I thought, oh no, because it's not going to live up to that. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna agree and disagree with you there, right? Because I I think I I disagree with the general conclusion. Well, I mean, I say I disagree generally. Obviously, I can't disagree with how you feel about it, right? But what I can say is I didn't come out with it with the same feeling. I think the thing that you've highlighted with the the Malik like shots, though, when I was talking about the film meandering, that's kind of what I had in my head. Um, I I think those are moments where it's dilutes the film a little bit for me if i'm honest um now that now for me it didn't it didn't take away and i think and i take your example about that that scene where sunya first comes into the film i can see what you're saying i can't honestly say it got i can't honestly say that got in the way for me or i can identify other points where it did um i think because for me, I'd, I'd like to me, it always it felt like quite a light touch to me, um, and I, I I struggle to come up with other examples where I feel like that sort of you know the way something's been framed or blocked or staged or something has got in the way for me. Um, I can see where you're coming from, but I I can't say I got I can't say it had ended up having the same effect on me as it has. Yeah, and I mean, I I don't know, just the the feeling of being closed in in a in a trailer or something like that. I mean, I I. I, I maybe sort of agree in that. I, I also, I, I think we were just talking about this last film about how scenery was shot and how, you know, the use of, you know, the how how Scotland was looked at differently. And I wasn't getting anything new. I mean, maybe it's just I'm not, I'm kind of sick of drone shots, but I wasn't getting anything new about the way Arkansas or, you know, rural America was particularly framed. But that being said, I don't think this film was, the, the highlight of this film wasn't wasn't that for me it was it was like you like you've all eloquently mentioned performances and that story and I thought it was particularly sweet and I was very captivated by it so so watch Minari um it will be on Glasgow Film Festival and then when is it is it coming out shortly thereafter in the UK knows. okay <laughs> really on a roll today <laughs> <laughs> All right. Don't worry. Don't worry. I'll bleep myself out there. <laughs> no, honestly, trying to plan this show, I'm giving up on looking at release dates. Uh, <laughs> Thank God for film festivals. At least I know somebody's going to see it. <laughs> so be sure to check out Minari and let us know what you think at the Glasgow Film Festival. So the next film we're going to review is Apples by Christos Nico. Um, Steph, why don't you tell us about that film? Yep, so um, basically within this film, Apples, um, if you have seen anything by Yorgos Lanthimos, you'll be kind of familiar with the kind of Greek absurdism that you get here. It's pretty much a story about um, this worldwide um, pandemic that is causing... Um, amnesia in, in, in citizens um, in citizens around um, the world and so you have um, these people who end up having 
a sharp shock to the head and and end up not being able to crawl any details of where they are, who they are, um, or where they're meant to be going and who their family is. So a lot of them end up in hospital with their um, images um, circulating around to try and find their family. And when they're not, um, when there's no one there to claim them, whether or not they they don't have family or it's one of those, whether their family's been affected by um, this kind of amnesiac pandemic, um, they end up going through a recovery program which gives them a new identity and helps them build a new life essentially but it's all regulated through this program so you have you have to do you kind of have to live your life in a certain way to establish your identity you don't have any leeway about how to live your life you have to do certain tasks um throughout the days to try and um, prove you're building a persona as such but everyone's sort of building the, the exact same um, replication, the exact same image of each other. So you've got this part of the world that um, is kind of trying to live through the system of what it means to be human and how when you lose that part of your memory, what um, how society says that you should rebuild yourself and what it means to be um, reintegrated into society. So it's quite, an, uh, it's quite a wacky kind of... It's part of what I would say is quite weird cinema. It's existential. It's very philosophical. Um, but it's it's one of those films that I think we have this um issue when we talking about arty and experimental films. I think um n- not to not something that I've actually seen yet, but that I think that sparked um controversy when um I'm thinking of ending things with um Kaufman about the the barrier between art house cinema and um and kind of pretentious cinema what's what's the difference what's to collide and i think that apples is quite good at re-establishing the kind of the functions of kind of art house cinema that is there to tell quite a, a central story in between it all and it's not it's not there to be complex for the sake of being complex is what i would say about it but um i don't know and um, i really enjoyed the film it's everything that i quite like about cinema um i don't know how you all felt about it um what did you think of the film jim I got a lot out of this. Um, so it's been kind of rattling around in my head for a bit. Um, so I'm going to have this weird collection of coherent thoughts and incoherent thoughts because I, I saw it a few months ago. And I I really I really liked it. And I think part of it is it's one of these films where it's interesting what you brought up at the end there, Steph, because part of what I enjoyed about this is I think it's one of these films where you could be teasing out all sorts of things from it for weeks, really, uh, on the basis of the way this is structured and some of the things that the the Aris character has to... some of the tasks that he has to, to undertake. And particularly, it's, it's interesting the bit <laughs> you mentioned about while they're read while these people who have suffered this memory loss are needing to rebuild their life they're they're basically given these prescribed tasks um by the medical staff and the thing that's really quite striking about it is these ridiculous deadpan photos that folk need to take to prove they've done something right and it's basically it's it's evidence of existence rather than feeling anything or personality, or any sort of genuine human connection. And that's kind of emphasised later in the film with through an interaction that, that Aris has. And in some ways, like me, maybe it's just me, I, I took it, certain parts of it, particularly just one second where he's flipping through a photo album of all these 
photos T- to me it felt like a bit of a comment on kind of modern social media and kind of it acting as a substitute for anything genuinely meaningful quite frankly but the wit the, the kind of absurdist deadpan way this is presented first of all i got a lot out of that that's just kind of like a sort of a tone that i i think i um get along with very well but the manner in which it is presented i found it it, it it does that thing. Like, we've spoken a lot about films that balance tone very well, right? But I think Apples is another one because it does that balancing of this absurdist, quite humorous way of looking at it. And at the same time, it's actually, it's actually kind of heartbreaking. They're going through all these things, going to parties because they've been instructed to. But you can just tell from Aris's face, it feels none of it. it feels absolutely none of it. Um, and again, it's another one where that script blends with the performances to really kind of bring home the emotions or in this case in some in some instances the lack thereof to be honest um so i got a lot out of it i think this will probably get a lot of people looking at it and they'll see the word pandemic and then probably turn off to be honest or like not pay attention but i actually think that what it's got going on that framing of it is very much in the in the background for me i think that the way it kind of looks at human connection emotion and the things that make you who you are right and the the role that memory plays in that i think is extremely interesting and i think that's where the the crux of the film is for me so it's one that i would like to watch again because i watched it my first thing was like i'm all over the place on this there are scenes i think are very interesting there's a sudden twist moment which is tremendous and then not tremendous because it's played so it's partially to do with the actor who's um our aris uh, servitalis who is very lanky has very laconic tendencies has a great trimmed beard and when he's doing those when he's doing the twist he has like such long legs that his his movements are so carefully delineated and look as though if you weren't looking at his face you'd be like oh someone's having a good time but you're looking at his face going the guy's an autopilot he's not feeling a thing um i do think that he has a br- he's a brilliant camera subject so when he's doing small things like peeling the apple he's really interesting to watch peel an apple that's not something you can say about lots of actors so um the film has that going for it the social media aspect to it which at first was kind of passed me by entirely but it's the moment when um aris meets anna at the cinema and there's a woman following who is also part of this um new identity program and what she does is they they all take photos with the poster of the film that they've just seen as one of the as one of the tasks that they've been set and the woman after anna and aris takes it as a selfie the other two put it down and put it on a timer and pose with the the poster what this woman does after them is takes it just literally like a selfie like anybody would do in daily life and that's the moment where it's like okay yes it's a social media allegory um as a social media allegory i'm not very interested in it it's one of these movies that plays on negative space a little bit like limbo um where there's so much negative space above them and it's a bit of a comment on the fact that they're amnesiac you know as though they're because they're amnesiac they, they don't they're not full subjects they don't deserve a fully proportioned frame for the men and I'm like that's not interested in that either um I will say however that the the Yorgos Lanthimos comparisons and I would say also the um Sangari comparisons are 
worthwhile and they're worthwhile in this way because the lead actor has starred in two of Lanthimos's movies. He was in Kineta and he was in Alps. Um, the director was second assistant director on Dogtooth. And the fact that there are unclaimed amnesiacs is very much like the Singles Hotel and the Lobster. Like, the, the Lanthimos comparison is quite a full one. I would also say that as much as I don't like parts of this film, this is a much better film than anything I've seen of Lanthimos's so far. So it's got that going for it. Um, it does have lots of little scenes that suggest that it's funnier than it is. It has moments with windshield wipers, it has a moment on a swimming pool, diving board that's like a, a skit from Mr. Bean. Um, it's, a, it's a very... it's a movie that I don't really care about, <laughs> if that's not too mean to say. Um, it has a certain kind of... has a certain understatedness. And then I'm, it, I'm trying to decide. I'm trying to decide whether that's not mean or incredibly mean. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, I just don't really care about it. There, there are things like the fact that the guy who gives the tasks over the tape recorder has a voice like the voice of Saw in the Saw movies. That's funny to me in a strange way, but I can't put this together as a full and appropriately for a movie about amnesiacs. I can't put this together as a full experience because it has lots of little curlicues and scenes that just appear like false appendages to me um so maybe i'll stop moaning about it now i think the i think that the film is very allegorical and i think when you when you go back to what jim said about you know, social media and, and, and mark echoed that about the um the problem with um how everything's digitalized and sent everywhere and the, what is authentic anymore is like as one of the big questions in this i will um accept um the social media what i think that people will see that either as something that's quite um quite a good way to explore that topic or people will find it quite jarring i think there's no in between there what i i think that what will annoy me is if this gets compared to COVID or the COVID pandemic, which I can see coming in quite a few reviews because of, I think the word pandemic and the current situation we jump to, oh, it's a tale about COVID in a new way. It, I think if you watch it, you know, it's really not anything, you know, other than there being a pandemic, there's not really any comparison to, I think, what's happening just now. It's very much more of a as I was the same as Mark, I immediately kind of went back to the lobster. That was something, the film that came to mind when I was watching it. So there is obviously quite a quite a big um, Lanthimos um, influence on this. And I think like his films, there are, it's not just kind of one core question. There's a few different parallels that you can draw from these films and different things that you can, and it, and it's not, um, I think you can go down a very linear path of, you know, the question of memory and what does memory um, mean and how does that really make us who we are. And then I think you can go down, you know, what is that saying about um, how we're now broadcasting everything on social media? Are we, are we actually living these experiences? Can we remember living them or can um, it's all just kind of... Um, saved on a drive somewhere to be revisited without actually having any kind of tactile recollections of those days. So I think it's one of those films that is very much, very much quite absurd. It's very much um, a kind of one of those films that is not going to be an easy watch. You've kind of got your, get, going to get, have to get quite um, 
focused into it if you want to get anything out of it. And not saying that, you know, I don't think that if you don't get anything out of it, that's necessarily anything to do with you. I think it's one of those films that, you know, either gels with you or doesn't. It's 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 something I think as well as Lanthimos, I think if you're a fan of um the films of Roy Anderson, you might quite like this movie. I think it goes into the existential despairs and questions that he kind of goes into and the meanings of existence and things. It's, it's very much it's very much a, a film that revels in its um, absurdity, in a sense. So I think the main thing, the, the main ideas of it, I did gel to it very strongly, I think. And w- one place where I am, I'm going to, I'm not going to disagree with Mark, but I'm going to offer a, a counter perspective, shall we say. The, the, the social media allegory, which came through very strongly for me. I think, for me, the strength of that one, and I think what interested me in it, because, you know, I mean, I don't want to be too old man yells at Cloud about it. You know, like social media, you can complain about social media all day long, right? But I think what was interesting about it in this film is the fact that the film itself is kind of a drift of time and place like i or at least i i I certainly couldn't place it as being in a particular time period you know there wasn't or certainly i don't recall any smartphones and the instructions that they're getting delivered by the medical staff it's done by cassette tape and it's kind of it's kind of the whole thing has got this kind of like retro aesthetic about it and i think once what i found quite striking about these you know these photos of these experiences where you can tell nobody is really getting anything emotional out of it is and then it's getting flipped through a photo album as opposed to like a camera roll or something for me it's once you take the modern aspect out of it and then the idea of any particularly modern technology it kind of shows up quite how absurd some of this stuff is and i i for me that was an interesting way to do it because anybody can say social media is bad these people are not your friends blah blah you know whatever the hell you want to to say about it but i think once you take it back you take it back and you remove it from modern technology and modern trends, to me, that made a stronger statement than anything that you could say overtly, right? Um, so for me, that's where the interest gets. And I think that's, that's for me, where it's a little bit a little bit different. I will also actually say, I think I've also... I, I gelled this a little bit stronger than some of the work I've seen from Lanthimos, if I'm being honest. So that's probably where there's maybe a... A similarity there. I would say that I was probably one person where I got a lot out of this film. Um, but as I say, to go back to what I was saying at the start, I think it's one of these things where people will find different aspects of it interesting. That's the one I kind of glommed on to, but I think other people will probably pick different things out of it. Or indeed, as is the case, the case with Mark, will find the bit that I found interesting not particularly interesting. So I think it's a, it's a movie with quite a lot of layers to it i think um and i'd be interested to see what other people took from it great so apples um check it out on glasgow film festival so the final film we're going to review is uh frederick weissman's next film um observational documentary city hall um and i will let mark um go and tell us about this film since he is the number one weissman fan i know it's a great honor um so city hall is 
Frederick Wiseman's newest documentary. It centers, as you would imagine, City Hall, this one in Boston, Massachusetts. It's structured in a way that kind of bifurcates. It, on the one hand is kind of a portrait of the mayor, Marty Walsh. So in a way it's kind of like at, kind of like at Berkeley in the way that it centered one person while also looking kind of in a panoramic way at how the institution works apart from that person, but obviously aware of his influence. Um, and then City Hall also kind of goes around the different places in the city that have connections to the work and the policies that are enacted in City Hall. So that really does it in terms of um, plot synopsis, that's all you need to know. And then the film is four and a half hours of, as, um, as Amanda mentioned, observation, direct observation. There's only one person in the entire film who looks at the camera at all. Um, as a guy who kind of cheekily in interacts with the camera, which is a complete no-no usually in Wiseman movies. He just edits out people who look at the camera, I'd imagine. Um, so the, the themes that we would need to be delineating from the film are the way that Walsh operates. A lot of the film is Walsh Walsh's appearances, media appearances. At, um, you know, There's one at a food bank where he's kind of part of a drive. The food bank has a, um, a mascot, which I found mind-boggling. Um, because there's so much detail in a Wiseman movie, there are umpteen things to pick up about them. They're rife with con contradictions, they're rife with strange things and bits of um, what would look like ephemera but end up kind of rebounding on each other and the editing in the film's like an, like an echo chamber in a way. Something that comes up in the first hour will reappear in the fourth and eventually be tied up into a more, um, more cohesive thematic element to the film. Um, I'll say that homelessness is an enormous focus in this film and a number of the meetings are about the work of homeless shelters, the work of charities who work with people who um, you know, are suffering as part of the opioid crisis. Um, there's also a huge emphasis on racial justice, gender equity as part of the work of the city and in all the businesses that are connected to the city. Um, the film, I would say, is an adulatory portrait of Walsh and the work that Walsh's staffers all do, but um, it's it's also, I think, subtly, not undermining him, but looking at the margins as well, looking where people aren't being, you know, kind of clasped by Walsh's rhetoric and there's a part towards the end of the film which is a lot like the kind of exquisite rhetorical work that goes on in Ex Libris. Um, there's a there's a meeting about a cannabis dispensary and it's this is when the film, this is a, a meeting which happens just at the end of the fourth hour and the beginning of the fifth, so it might be a task to work it out, but the cannabis dispensary is one of the first moments where someone in a meeting actually answers the person speaking back. And it's a moment where a rhetorical contest of sorts, not um, you know aggressive, but passionate, where people, members of the local community, talk back to the people who are trying to um, you know set up institute a, a cannabis dispensary in one of the poorest neighborhoods in Boston, in Dorchester, and they have amazing things to say about what this means for them. Is it going to be a positive thing in the community? They they accept that the people trying to set up the dispensary mean well, but they're getting them to be absolutely drum tight in the way that it's going to be uh, open so that it affects the, the community in a positive way. And they say just uh, ama they're amazing arguments that they make, which 
did remind me of the arguments in Ex Libris to an extent. I'll stop talking for a minute. Um, Amanda, what did you what did you think of City Hall? Um, I yeah, I I I think uh, the one thing that's interesting is that yeah, I I mean I the I've seen a lot of his films that are, deal with institutions and art galleries and things like that, and so it was it was interesting to me because I've not seen as many as you have about. Um, you know, taking on government and also particularly just because I spent so much time in New York and didn't spend time in Boston, um, you know, there's a huge rivalry between those two cities. But I, I think that adulatory mention that you had uh, really does ring true. I did feel like it was it was kind of showing a, a really positive light to city government that I didn't expect. Um, maybe I kind of maybe thought to uncover stuff. And I also felt like uh, unlike a lot of other films I feel like I've seen while yes sure the head of the National Gallery or you know the person running the opera or whatnot um, ballet was an important character that you would constantly go back to I felt like this one was in and you mentioned another film that that maybe that was the case but this is the first one I saw that I really thought there was like a primary character which was the mayor and um you know, I, 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 he was the most political, like I, not that I disagreed with his politics by any means. Um, but, uh, it definitely brought, you know, it, it definitely showed that the government is working like is functionally working in Boston. And I don't know if that's like something I would have even guessed and, 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 you know, and, and some case and, and did, did quite enjoy all the accents and, and um and whatnot but yeah i did i did feel like there was it was interesting to see some earnest like you mentioned the um the conversation that was happening with the residents in dorchester that was a really powerful moment for me i also really enjoyed the moments with the veterans but then when when the mayor came up and kind of gave his speech it always seemed like he had to come in and kind of give an exclamation point to it so maybe it was just my own personal annoyance with him sometimes <laughs> but um but yeah I, I you know I, I i found it very very the way i like a weissman film and something i learned from that you know um and uh, i don't I, I don't know i mean i think sometimes i know this is probably a really really bad example but um you know like when you look at the show the wire that kind of took different segments segments of a city i think this the way that this is able to um you know to go through various components of of city life and and what they have to deal with and even just sometimes it's quite funny like stop yelling at me or um I, I particularly really enjoyed this the moments where um you know the the people are pleading for their tickets and how pleasant the people who gave them reprieves were on their parking tickets uh, because that was not the experience I had in Jersey City or New York. So I, it almost made me want to move to Boston. Um, that will never happen. But, you know, in, in any case, I, 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 I did um, I did think it was a celebration more than I expected. So um, and, and I appreciate that. I so I I think I I've got less experience with Frederick Wise than I think either of you. Um, this is only the the second one of his films I've seen. The other one being uh, Ex Libris, the one about the New York Public Library. Um, I I got a lot out of this. Um, I I, <laughs> I this is going to sound like I'm damning with faint praise, but I'm not. I enjoyed it. I think as much as you can in a four and a half hour documentary about local government. Yeah. Um, but I think that. 
I think the point, but I'm not, I'm not being, you know, I'm not being facetious there. I do. I, it is genuinely, <laughs> in genuinely really good. And I think part of what I liked about it is the way that it stitches together the role that government and local government in this sense um, plays with the local community. And that in both a positive and a negative sense, you know, I think it, it does show bits where people are looking for more from their uh, local authorities and it highlights maybe where they're not doing as well as they should. But at the same time, and I think this is probably added a little bit more um, punch by the time and place in which it came out, right? So I think it made it, it, it first popped up at Venice last year uh, and then it's gone on a big, big, huge kind of festival tour, both virtual and otherwise since then, you know, ahead of the, the US election. I, I, I don't, I can't recall Trump being mentioned explicitly. I mean, he's alluded to. I, I, I don't. I think he probably is at some point, but I can't quite remember when. And it is kind of the elephant in the room. But what's good about this film, or what I liked about it, is it kind of just shows how government should work. Now, I, and when I say that, I don't mean that you know the mayor of Boston is, you know, doing a stellar job and everything he should or any of the local authorities are. I just more meaning that they're they're getting about their work, right? There's a lack of um there's a lack of reality television about it, which I think there has been for quite some time. And I think the fact that this is the documentary that he has made speaks to the time and place in the United States it was made in. Um and I got a lot out of it. And I think part of what really brought that feeling home to me are just the numerous segments throughout the film um, where we move away from, you know, whatever public meeting is happening or, you know, whatever speech the mayor is making, anything like that. And basically, really, either the camera will just sit on a street corner for an extended period of time or it will cycle through shots of local businesses and spots and things like that and it kind of to me really got across a real sense of the role that this institution plays in that community and there's that that link there which to me is where kind of the the real heart of the film for me anyway um came in so i i got a lot out of that and i think the the fact that this is as long as it is allows that to sink in i don't think i think if you were to skim the surface of this and not show the breadth of the way that this actually touches people's day-to-day lives would lessen the impact of that so i i got a lot out of it and i find it interesting that's the topic covered at this particular time in american political history yeah and i it'd be worth saying too that wiseman refers to his films as reality fictions which as you can imagine is a phrase i'm i'm enamored of um and what what this does is it means that every every decision he makes in the film is an interpretation because he has an enormous amount of condensation of material to do to carry out so those those sequences jim you're, you're mentioning those kind of pillow shots of the the city they end up being like the film in miniature in a way because what are they shots of? They're shots of businesses, but which businesses are they? They're shots of Thai restaurants, Vietnamese supermarkets. They're they're shots of um, Dominican takeaways. Like they're 
they're making the point about who lives in Boston and that it's a majority minority town. Um, the other major part of those pillow shots are houses. And as I mentioned, this is a film so much about housing. And there's a, a point where they mention the proposal to roll back on um, the Fair Housing Act, which will make people um, vulnerable to evictions. And there are so many meetings throughout the film which are about trying to tackle that. But the Trump administration, which I think does get an explicit mention at one point, but it is largely just... It's largely just referred to as the current administration, which I think is right. Um, two, I think it's so much a film about language and the, the way in which, as Amanda mentioned when uh, Walsh turns up at the veterans meeting, he has his rhetorical style depends so much upon um, pathos. It depends so much upon personalizing politics, sometimes to a fault because he has those moments where he turns up and just makes it about his own story, which is, they're, they're quite funny in a way. He turns up at the meeting full of um, Latinx staffers and just starts talking about his Irish roots and uh, he turns up at the veterans meeting and starts talking about his experiences um, in recovery and you're like he's he's kind of overstepping a mark but he's also got a, a casualness and a lack of bureaucraties that gets him away with it like he's just a, a guy who's just particularly good at his job that is obviously PR'd to the nth degree He's obviously been like trained at this and is extremely good at this, but it does it does speak to the the way that language is, and discourse and discursive terms are kind of the the heart of any working democracy. And then you can ask, is it a working democracy at that time? I also want to point out the moments where it goes into portraits of labor because so many of Wiseman's films are themselves portraits of labor, and not only are they portraits of labor, they are themselves enormous acts of labor. This is four and a half hours long. There's a great deal of work to be done here. So there are moments like the amazing um, sequence with the guys throwing trash for the city and things thrown onto the trash compactor that just, you don't, like, that can't fit there. That, that grill surely will not be crushed <laughs> by this compactor, and it is. And he has these close-ups of their hands pulling the levers and there's, there, those scenes are so exciting to me. Um, and it's worth mentioning too that we can talk about subject matter till we're blue in the face, but Wiseman is, or I should say his cameraman, um, his camera person, John Davy, is extraordinarily good at finding beautiful images, just casually, no, out of nowhere. For instance, I know that there are lots of complaints about Boston's skyline as, a, as an aesthetic object, but I found the way that he made buildings kind of converge on each other here it's really, really beautiful. And in a number of the ones that are off City Hall, again, it does the thing in miniature, which is City Hall is shown jutting into the next building, just as the things that go on in City Hall affect everyone in the city. So I, I think that there are umpteen things still to mention uh, that, we, that we could probably get to. But um, I will say that... I don't think this is one of Wiseman's best films. I think it's I think it's very good, um, but it's not welfare or hospital or near death. His like and Ex Libris and in Jackson Heights, which I think is the movie this is probably closest to in terms of the diversity of the space which it takes as its subject, and the amount that meetings play a part of things. Um, but I think ultimately this comes back to. A certain level of utopianism that has creeped into the films from, I would say, maybe National Gallery onwards, with the exception of uh, Monrovia, Indiana, which is kind of unfairly pegged as his Trump movie. Um, I think this is 
got a certain strain of American optimism in it, but it's not the naive kind. It goes for documenting what's good about the process of this particular city government, but also shows where it has to go further. And it's, as I mentioned, that um, that Dorchester meeting where a number of the residents can't turn up, again, we're talking about language, because they're Cape Verdean migrants and they don't speak English. So they need to have the material translated for them to, the, for them to be um, part of the political process. So the point ultimately being that, yes, the, um, Walsh is doing a good job and City Hall is working as, as, you know, pretty well. There's always more to do. There are always more people to include. And the people who aren't included currently, guess who they are? They're poor and they're mostly not white. And I think that that's the, the point that this all kind of coalesces around. Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. I think I guess it was much more utopian than I expected. And um, and at the same time, there was a lot more pathos than I expected. Like, I mean, there was just these scenes, um, not to say that that doesn't exist in his other films. Of course it does. But, um, you know, I, I think that sometimes I just felt like with with the with the arts administration ones, it was a very much like this is the details of what we do when we put on, you know, you know, an exhibit. And this is five minutes of a guy, you know, putting a light up. And these these moments and, the you know, the the, the, the people working on the ground in the city, um, you know, trying and fighting for for people within the city is is I mean, I also kind of remember the guy who went to the to with the eviction notice or, or something around that where the where the veteran was kind of giving his whole information out to him, you know? And uh, I mean, but the way that he responded so sim- sympathetically to that that person, the the wedding was a, was a special moment too. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I was really impressed um, and, I, and, I, and I enjoyed it. I just didn't, I guess I was a little bit more like, oh, you normally get upset with city governments because they hand you tickets, but... I think it allows you to see, um, you know, the massive amount of work and effort that goes into running a city and the amount of people that, you know, that that require, you know, this effort and 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 that there are really like, you know, really valuable people who, you know, in that process. So um, and they're obviously, like you said, dealing with the current administration who is probably just making everything incredibly hard on them um so yeah i mean i highly highly um enjoyed it and uh but uh, but i knew it would so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah was... I, was, I was expect i was expecting to as well obviously but um i would say that there are there are a couple of um you know moments where i can't quite work out where things fit into the structure they're mm-hmm. not organically pieced in there's a kind of detour to the outskirts of the city um, which then go to a library which has a like massive collection of ceramics and then to a botanic center and that detour felt like it could have like there should have been a neater stitching to it it's kind of just we're going out now and then next scene back into city hall again and it felt like a bit of a jump and I couldn't work out exactly why the rhythm faltered at that minute but um, uh, I will, I'll end by saying I, I really love the um, the parking violation hearing scenes as well because they're (laughs) a kind of they're kind of totemic of what people expect like the expectations of going to a a parking violation hearing are god i'm gonna get stiffed by a you know low-level bureaucrat who's as bored as i am with this whole process and that's not what happens because they're they're sympathetic they realize people have lives they realize that one of the people is a dad who 
was under very harried circumstances the other person who turns up an older man was like i didn't realize people lived here <laughs> and they, like they take that they take it at face value because it's you know it's how life is like it's what life is like and they're extremely personable in those scenes and i found that very heartening I wonder if we had to, if we did if Frederick Weissman did one on Edinburgh City Council what it would look like if it oh like God, anything like so that. Dull. <laughs> oh, who knows? Who knows? Anyway, City Hall is Glasgow Film Festival, of course, and uh, check it out. We recommend it. It's four and a half hours long, though, so give yourself some time. So I'm joined here with Paul Sung, who's the co-director of Polystyrene, I'm a Cliché. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Amanda. Great. And um, your film is, um, is, it, is this the UK premiere of, um, of the film? Or it's is actually it... the world premiere at Glasgow. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Great. It's a world premiere, so very exciting. Um, so tell me a little bit about the background of how the film got started. I know you're based in Edinburgh, uh, but uh, you know, how, how did you kind of come across the the, the theme and the and the, the film? Yeah, well, when um, we first sort of met one another, Celeste and I and our writer Zoe Howe, um, I was living in Brighton. This was back in 2016, and I'd met Zoe. We'd done a couple of Q and A's together, and um, I'd said to her, you know, offhand, if you ever have any ideas for music docs, you know give us a shout, be good to collaborate. And she had three really good ideas, one of which was Holly, um, because Celeste and Zoe were working on a book about Holly Starring. So we met with Celeste in a cafe in London, I think it was December 2016, and I sort of pitched an idea to them about how I maybe saw the film, which was to you know choose some iconic locations in Polly's life and explore them in the present day, you know, with Celeste. Uh, and also I asked Celeste if she'd be willing to kind of write some letters to her mum to sort of open like a dialogue. And, you know, they were interested in that approach. And over time we developed that idea and rather than letters, um, the base of those letters then became Celeste's voice over in the film. Celeste became much more present in the film as well in terms of, you know, we see Celeste, she is, um, you know, the a character in the film, you know, that has almost as much prominence as her mum really. Um, and then from there, we talked about the type of film we, we wanted to make. I didn't really want to do Talking Heads again because I'd done that on my first two films. And I guess inspired by Asif Kapadia and his style of making films where, you know, we, we, we hear voices, but we also see archive. Um, we went that way and it obviously was, I think it paid off, but, you know, using archive is expensive. And I guess that's why it's prohibitive a lot of the time and clearing it all for the rights. But ultimately, I think it made the, the film a lot more immersive. I mean, when you're hearing people talking about, you know, being in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s and the 90s, you get a much richer picture of it when you can see footage from that period and just hear the voice. Whereas if you were seeing, you know, people, Vivian Westwood or Don Letts in a room in the present day, I, th I think it's, it's a bit more difficult as an audience to immerse yourself um, in a period. So you know, that was kind of how it came together, really. Yeah, no, that's very fascinating. And I did think of things like Amy, Amy and Supersonic certainly come to mind, but also very much um, personal stories. Like one of my favorite documentaries was My Architect um, and the stories we tell. So I do think seeing it through the lens of, um, you know, Celeste in, is, is really powerful. And you kind of did give a really good overview on how, on how you came with that. On the archive material, it's really a fascinating mixture, um, you know, how how did you approach that 
of finding all of that. Um, I know it can be quite complicated. And as you mentioned, very expensive. Um, but what was that process for you? I mean, initially we had an archive researcher who worked on the film and we kind of gave her a rough brief. And then latterly Celeste took on that role as well, along with our editors, Anna, um, who, you know, had, had a, we, had, we had an idea of what our story was. And then it was just a case of exploring various archives. I mean, the majority of it is from Getty, but we also used Kino. Um, there was a, another library that we used that was a smaller one um, based in Hastings. And yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of interesting. I, mean, I think the inspiration for the archive was, you know, filmed also filmed by um, Julian Temple. Um, and I'm thinking of The Filth and the Fury. There's a lot of great archive from the 70s, but we didn't want to tap into that same, you know, 70s punk archive that you always see. We did want it to be a bit more creative. So, you know, as we were making the film, we would all come up with suggestions. I mean, at some at one point, I think I suggested The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari because it was a film I'd seen a long time ago. And in terms of the film's mood, I mean, there are moments in the story where it's kind of like a fairy tale and we wanted it to kind of have, you know, that sense of... Um, that sense of wonder and I guess that sense of fear that the children sometimes have because when Celeste was young and you know she was living in the the temple the Hare Krishna temple and she talks about when she escaped and crawled out of the window the language that she uses is very you know fairy tale-esque and I think in terms of the archive that you see I mean it, it does match up with what you're hearing but it isn't always directly you know what you hear is what you see it's a lot more creative than that really. Absolutely. And um, it's, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating amount of material. Although I did um, find it interesting when you're, when you're kind of doing, you don't do reenactments, but you take, Celeste kind of takes a tour through, you know, parts of her life. Like she goes to New York and I lived in New York for a bit. And one of the saddest things was CBGB's is, you know, now gone. So I liked how you artfully kind of, you know, emulated the experience of, of a place like that. Um, But yeah, really sort of a mixture between, those beautiful shots of, you know, Celeste cooing through kind of her, um, so, so yeah, how long and how long did it take for you to, to kind of make the whole film, I guess, is the question. It was a long time comparatively compared to other things I've done. I mean, we had the initial concept, I guess, early 2017, we raised some money in a crowdfunding campaign around April, 2017. Um, ultimately it wasn't enough to finish the film and then, and it took a long time to bring the rest of the funding in. And we were very lucky um, that we had a couple of private investors come in. And Sky commissioned the film. Um, so that brought in some money. And then Screen Scotland and BFI Doc Society. So thanks to all of those people, we were able to finish the film. Um, but it's interesting, you know, what you said about CBGBs and now it's, you know, a fashion emporium. And, I think going there and filming it was it was there was a, an irony to that in that you know Polly, as you know, wrote a lot about consumerism and and the consumerist society and what that meant in terms of art and everything else and it's, it's a bitter irony that this you know great um, you know venue of, of punk back in the day is now you know a retail outlet and they've preserved a lot of the features but I don't know it's a bit like Madame Two Swords in a way it's not really real. Um, but we're very grateful that they you know, allowed us to film there. So I'm not going to say bad things. Yeah. No, absolutely. I didn't even know that's that's where it, it still is. A, a Like they kind of have a museum to it. I lived in the East Village for a long time. And I just I suppose 
um, it, it is it is really interesting that like at her, you kind of make that point when she, you know, she reaches New York, that's a critical moment for her and what she sees. And, and I guess as someone who's doing the opposite, who's lived now in Edinburgh and the UK, um, I didn't know polystyrene's you know, you know, I'm not from that generation, but I also, you know, didn't know much about her, um, about her, her, her life until, until I saw this film. So, um, we, you talked about the crowdfunding, uh, like the, is there a huge, massive pop, you know, like, like, does she have a bunch of fans from the previous that kind of contributed or how, how did you go about the kind of, like you said, sort of securing all the funding through all those various things? Yeah. I mean, she, Polly has, has a, a, a really big fan base in terms of X-Ray Specs fans and people that like her and her music and what she stood for as an artist. So when we launched that, which was via Indiegogo back in, I think it was about April 2017, um, we got a lot of press everywhere, really. Um, and we, we raised our target. And then lastly, we did a Patreon, which also brought in some money. But it, I think it helps when you're trying to raise you know, money through a crowdfunding campaign you either need to have a really, you know, hot idea that a lot of people are going to, you know, be interested in that has some kind of universal appeal maybe, or whatever you're making needs to have an existing audience. And often musicians or artists do have that already. And it's interesting in, in making the film, I mean, crowdfunding is, is tricky, it's challenging, but if you do well and, you know, you, you raise your target, what it does help with is it, it enables you to identify that you have an audience in place. And we knew that already, but it just reinforced how much love there, there was out there for polystyrene, um, you know, because she touched lives. I mean, she wasn't a household name, maybe in the way that, you know, Susie Sue or Chrissy Hind is. But in terms of, you know, how she inspired people, you know, considering she you know, left behind a comparatively sort of smaller body of work than, say, some of the other punk artists, um, do you honestly did touch people people were inspired um i think by her originality by her honesty um and also just by her integrity you know she didn't sell out you know she um she could have made those decisions to have more longevity as a career and make more money but you know, i think it, as an artist she was someone that had um you know was more interested in in, in art and, and what it meant than, than selling records and i think that's you know, commendable really yeah, absolutely. And it definitely came across in the film. And um, I, I was really moved by her story personally. But I also thought it was really interesting that she, you know, she, she obviously represented this iconoclast at that era. And then she was still battling these, you know, you know, the, the, the issues of fame and, and all of that. And I think it's such a really powerful film that if people who push against that as much as possible are still having to I mean, there's a vulnerability there in, the, in your story. So it's, it's, it's really, um, I mean, were you a big fan before or is it, is it just that, um, yeah, I mean, how, how, did, how, did, how did this personally um, make you kind of learn more about her story? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I was a big fan. I mean, I was, I was a fan. I knew, obviously, I Bondage Up Yours. I knew the album Germ for Adolescence. But often when I'm approaching a story, for me, wanting to learn more about the subject or the participant and, and, you know, go on a journey really with, with them is important. So I learned, you know, pretty much most of what I now know about polystone through making that film. There was a lot of information out there already. And, you know, from one of the first times of speaking to Celeste, a lot of those kind of bits of false information that are on Wikipedia that are on the internet, such as the fact that I think, I think it still says it on her Wikipedia page, but at one point it was that, you know, her dad was, um, 
Somali aristocrat, which is absolute rubbish. I think maybe Polly had said that jokingly in an interview yeah. once and it got picked up on. So I learned a lot more and, and you know, I already knew Jeremy Fairlessons as an album, but I grew to, you know, be, so it's, it's still now even after making the film that I can listen to regularly and listen to it all the way through. Whereas sometimes when you're making a, a film and, you know, you, you have a bit of distance after, after doing it, but that hasn't really happened yet. And I think that's just because the songs are so good. The songwriting yeah. is, is, you know, it, she isn't, she isn't, you know, she's not a punk artist. She's someone that writes just pop tunes really, um, but that appealed to that punk audience at the time. Yeah. And I often think, I mean, I've done, I'm a documentary filmmaker myself, but you become kind of the world expert on these subjects, you know, and really like take a journey um, with these, you know, these, these people that you're um, so, so it is, it is quite interesting to see how, you know, how that, how that's changed over time. What, um, you know, without knowing too much about what you've done before, what, what kind of um, work are you looking into doing going forward? Do you have things planned in terms of your work? Yeah, I mean, my work really, you know, the first few things I've done have tended to focus on people who kind of challenge the status quo in some way, and Polly is obviously mm -hmm. one of them. I'm also interested in issues of representation around people or subjects that have been, you know, neglected, marginalised, misrepresented. Um, so the next film I'm going to be making is about um, a photographer called Tish Murtha, um, who was a working class woman from the northeast of England. Uh, whose career was, you know, on an upward trajectory um, when she was when she was, you know, in her early twenties, and was kind of um, sort of then on hold when she had a daughter and never really recovered, you know. And Tish was, as, as someone who documented, um, you know, poverty in some of her work, you know, which was something she wanted to escape but never really did. So, I am interested in in kind of you know exploring stories that if they have taken past, you know, taken place in the past, there's still a relevance today. And of course, we're seeing even you know greater levels of inequality than the ones that Tish described in her photographs 40 years ago. So yeah, that's the next one anyway. Great. Well, I think obviously this film um, is so resonant today and it was a real pleasure to watch and a real pleasure to talk to you. So um, Polystyrene, I Am a Cliche is um, world premiering at what, what day of the Glasgow Film Festival? It's on Saturday, the 27th of February. Saturday, 27th of February. Um, so yeah, everybody, please check it out. And Paul, thanks again for your time. Thank you. So that's our reviews of um, the Glasgow Film Festival. Uh, there's plenty more to watch out for. And um, Jim and Mark, uh, do you have any thoughts on films that people should think about checking out? Yeah, no, there's a few. Um, I think one that is uh, one that's definitely worth checking out, and I'm hoping we might talk about it on a future edition of the show, actually, is uh, Black Bear. Not that I want to have too much of a Sundance 2020 feel to the show, right? Because we've already spoken about Minari. Um, it's a film which I think I, I'll be interested to see what people make of it. Um, I think I could see some people taking quite strongly against it. I got a lot out of it. Uh, it's not perfect by any means, but it's a very interesting film, uh, and I think that's one that's really worth catching. And hopefully, we'll speak about. Um, Riders of Justice is an interesting one, and I think it, as was main, I think we mentioned before, Mads Mikkelsen's beard in that film is particularly spot on i think uh the the film itself is maybe a little bit rocker but i think i think that's a good one that people will will enjoy watching right i think cards on the table i think there's better 
films playing at the festival, but I I, I certainly enjoyed it. Um, there's a variety of other films um, which are pretty good. Unfortunately, with our broadcast time, I can't talk about them just yet because a couple of them are world premieres. Um, but there's definitely interesting stuff kicking around. I think all the films we've spoken about, Black Bear, Riders of Justice, that's one that I'd um, I'd pick out as well. So there's definitely a lot to to recommend. I think it's one of these programs where you just dip in and see what you fancy. But those those are the two that I can talk about that I would say are probably worth checking out. Yeah, and anyone else? Um, so because we're kind of hamstrung by what we can talk about, I can say that there are certain directors who I'm interested in seeing their films and would suggest um, if anybody's interested in, say, the films of Anaka Sawicha Kornpong. She has a short that's playing as part of an anthology movie called Mekong 2030. Um, there's a movie which doesn't have an embargo, just confirming this, um, called Castro's Spies documentary that is the kind of thing that could very feasibly end up on BBC Storyville as their 80-minute documentary. Um, I don't think it's brilliant, but I do think it has a kind of an interesting angle and is put together in a pretty fleet way. It kind of goes through the story of the, the five Castro spies, or the ten Castro spies who were um, captured in the 90s, um, and five of them held out on um, cooperating, with, cooperating with the Americans. It's a really, it is a really interesting story, and if you've seen Olivier Asias's Wasp Network and the complete narrative you know, crash and mess of that film, which I, I quite like some of it of, some of it, but um, I couldn't make sense of who was where doing what and why, and this movie contextualizes it quite a lot. Um, I'll say I'm looking forward to, and I've heard good things about, Preparations to Be Together for an Unknown Period of Time, directed by Lily Horvat, and I have already seen this, but can't really say anything about, I'll say, so I'll, I'll, I'll be creative and say, I'm looking forward to watching First Cow again, and that's it. <laughs> of course first cow because it got added i forgot about that yeah. yeah and there's quite a lot of interesting documentaries i think on the on on the program that i'm interested in i'm interested in the um one that's uh and i'll probably miss the pronounce it orum which is a boat song which is completely done in gaelic um that one seems really interesting also eye of the storm which is about um a, a scottish um scottish uh painter james morrison but has a soundtrack from Kareen Polwart. So again, I think you mentioned that completely, Jim. It's just an, it's a nice mixture of like really popular films over the fact you know that's maybe have made it to other other um, film festivals over the year, but also Scottish um, a real Scottish uh, take to it. So some really great films um, that uh, that you should um, you should check out. And it would be smart for us to tell you how to. So GlasgowFilm.org, um, check out Glasgow Film Festival. It's it's interesting. You can you can definitely buy one-on-one -on -one tickets, but there's also bundles. Um, and you know, as I mentioned, I think from my experience so far, um, the 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 way in which you can watch the films is, is quite easy, and it's it's quite it's quite lovely. You can stream it to your laptop or but also your tv and stuff like that so it's it's really well done i think really well curated so we really enjoyed um doing this uh glasgow film festival special for a second time and we're looking forward to doing it again and hopefully we'll all be able to go back in person 
by then. I don't want to jinx us. <laughs> Did I just you know, do I that? Really, I, I really feel like we should just record you saying that and then we could just continue <laughs> adding it to the end of every episode. <laughs> Hopefully we'll be able to see each other in person sometime again. <laughs> well, I mean, at a Glasgow film festival, at a film festival someday. Um, it's killing me. I was looking at pictures actually of um, us recording this this day this year or something like that a couple of days ago when we we did it we did the one last year and there was like six of us in the EHFM studio and it was yeah it was, mm-hmm. which is which is not a big studio no it's like. not and it <laughs> it was frightening and you know um, and nostalgic all the same but anyway so um, ha- guys have exciting film plans finishing out this Glasgow Film Festival things this month. What's on your what's on your plans? Well, <laughs> not content with taking up my time with a million film festivals. I've got another one. <laughs> um so like there'll be South by Southwest at the start of March. Um I'm accredited for that, so theoretically I should, you know, actually try to write something for that. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> I was actually accredited for it last year and I was gonna try and wing it and get screeners and stuff, but of course then I got cancelled during the pandemic. Yeah. So this is another one of these little milestones a year on so no that's coming up and then i think uh glasgow short film festival looks interesting yeah. and that's happening at the end of march so I, you know i just checking out what's going on i don't think i'm going anywhere to a cinema anytime soon before the next do a show so yeah that that's fair and uh steph how yeah, about I'm you so um i'm just recently signed up for my bfi accreditation so i'm waiting for that to come through so hopefully i'll can see the best from the fest of that and i'm actually still kind of playing a bit catch up last from last year um i missed out on nomadland from the london film fest last year so i'm very excited to catch that this year it's been on my i've been hearing so many good things about it. it's been on my mind for the past year so i'm just going to be excited when that's finally released and i can catch that great and mark have you finished your uh weissman um uh weissmanathon or are you still going because 19 films plus uh i don't know how many frederick weissman um all in a month and some writing papers i it blows me away actually. um so i have run out in that i can't find anymore there are still some to see i just can't <laughs> spot them anywhere um i think i did i can't remember how many it is i did consecutively um it was basically a weissman a night for several weeks and um so that's quite a few so i've seen maybe like 34 of his films now and um it's it's been fun it's also been extremely draining because those films are long and some of them are very tough although the toughest one which has got a little bit of a connection to city hall um is maybe the maybe the best document one of the best documentaries i've ever seen which is a way of saying it's one of the best films i've ever seen is uh, Near Death, which, as you would imagine from that title, is not uh, a cheery movie at all, but one of those like essential essential documents that have to be seen. There are also fun ones, and I'm sure I'm sure we can talk about them at a later date. But yeah, The Wiseman's been fun, um, for the most part, and I'm also doing BFI Flare next month, and once once that's done, it's going to be dissertation. So. Not a lot more. Are you writing your dissertation on um, Frederick Weisman? No, I don't think so. I want to give him a break for a while. <laughs> come, come back to... Because <laughs> you would, I would have, have been, been prepared. prepared. I, feel, I, feel, I feel like if you don't, you've missed an opportunity for synchronizing interests there. I'll come back to Fred at a later date recharge. 
All right. Well, um, thank you all for joining us again, and we'll see you in a future episode, hopefully the next one, if not the one after. Um, Thanks again. And again, uh, thank you for all for joining us. And always feel free to write us back and we're at Cenotopia on Twitter and at Cenotopia Hub on Instagram, cenotopiashow.com. See you next time.